Well, dear friends, I'm back again in Moody'sburn, and I do trust that God will bless us as we gather around his precious word this evening. Now, if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 13, please. And always remember, when you turn to John's Gospel that John is actually writing his gospel many, many years after Matthew, Mark and Luke. They're known as the Synoptic Gospels, but John is writing his gospel many, many years after Matthew, Mark and Luke. And that is why when you read his gospel, you'll find that he records certain events, certain people, that you won't find in Matthew, Mark and Luke. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he has come from God and went to God, he rises from upper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should, follow, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me, lifteth up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me.
Now dear friends, I'm going to take you back many, many years. And for some of you, it's going back a long, long time. Think of your school days. Think of your school days. Can you remember those days in which the teacher teaching you English, teaching you mathematics, arithmetic, and there's every possibility that he, when he was teaching you, or she was teaching you, that he would say, well now, let me give you an example. And he would give you an example how the sum is carried out, or how the sentence in English is composed. Or if you've been to university or a college of further education, the same thing would apply. You listen to the lecture, lecture on economics or whatever, and there's every possibility that he would say, I, let me give you an example of what I mean. And by giving you an example, somehow it makes the subject or the theme more interesting, as you see it worked out in everyday life. And that is what I want to speak about this evening for, for a short time. Example. Now, in the authorised version that I'm preaching from this evening, you don't have the word example in the Old Testament. It's not found from Genesis to Malachi. But when you turn to the New Testament, you find that the word example you have it no less than nine times. You have it twice in the Gospels, and you've got it seven times in the Epistles. Now that's your homework when you go home tonight. You're going to take your New Testament, and you're going to read it right through, and you're going to locate the, the nine references to the word example. Twice in the Gospels, seven times in the Epistles. Won't take you long. Only twenty-seven chapters. Only seven. Only twenty-seven books in the New Testament. Look up the word example. Used nine times. And when you look up, look up those um, references, you find that the Lord Jesus is referred to as an example by himself and then by the Apostle Peter we have it here in John chapter 13 Jesus said verse 15 for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you and then in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, Peter says that Christ has left us an example that we should follow in his steps and what we're going to do this evening, we're going to have a look at the wonderful example of the Lord Jesus. Now the Bible clearly teaches that as Christians, we should be examples to others. Whether to the unsaved or to our fellow Christians. We are to be examples. But by, by no stretch of the imagination can we say that we are perfect examples never because for the reason we are but human and we fail we are examples 
but we can never be perfect examples. But isn't it wonderful that when we think of our Lord Jesus, when he sets himself as an example, it is a perfect example. You will find a fault or a flaw or a blemish. It is a perfect example. By it would take us literally a week this evening just to try and deal of how the Lord Jesus is an example. We could spend literally weeks on it on different ways in which he sets us an example. But of course I'm not here for weeks. I'm just here this evening. So we're going to single out one aspect of his being an example. And we're going to think of the Lord Jesus as an example in his humility. That's the theme this evening. Jesus, an example in his humility. Now, I can't promise you a great message, a great sermon. But I can promise you this is a tremendous subject. This is a wonderful subject. This is a majestic subject that should fill our hearts as we see him. And then Peter says that we should follow in his steps. And that's a particular grace to follow in his steps. Now we'll look at our Lord's example in his humility in three very simple ways. First of all, we see his condescending humility. And then secondly, we'll see his practical humility. And then thirdly, we'll see his ultimate humility. Condescending humility, practical humility, and then his ultimate humility. Look first of all then at his condescending humility. And my, what a subject himself. Think him leaving the glories of heaven to come to earth. And in a few weeks time we shall be celebrating Christmas. In which we shall be thinking of that very event in which the Lord Jesus left the glories and splendors of heaven and came down to earth to be born as a babe by the Virgin Mary and be born in that humble manger in Bethlehem of Judea. And then think that he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That we through his poverty might be rich. Now when was he rich? Not when he was here upon earth. Born in a manger. Had to ask for a denarius or a penny. Ah but he was rich in the glory. In majesty, splendor and glory. That's when he was rich. Not in LSD or money. But in splendor and majesty. And yet he was willing to become poor. That we through his poverty might be rich. And then think of this. He was God the Son. 
because we believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and our Lord Jesus, he was God the Son, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And yet in his humility, he became the God man. Deity took into union humanity. And when he appeared upon earth, you looked at him, you could see a Jew, a man, that was humanity, but within his humanity there was his glorious deity, the God-man. But before that, he was God the Son in eternity past. And then think of this. He was made a little lower than the angels. Now it was he who created the angels. Whether you think of the seraphim or the cherubim or the angels in their multitudes, it was the Lord Jesus who created these angels. And yet in his condescending humility, he became lower than the angels. Oh, what humility that was. Think of that. His condescending humility. I came across recently a lovely old hymn by William Booth, who was the founder, as you know, of the Salvation Army. Sometimes this is actually sung as a solo. Perhaps you've heard it sung. And I want to read it to you. Tremendous words. They have really blessed me as I have read them. Here's what it says. Down from his glory, ever living story, my God and Saviour came, and Jesus was his name. Born in a manger, to his own a stranger, a man of sorrows, tears, and agony. Here's what the second verse says. Listen. What condescension bringing us redemption that in the dead of night not one faint hope in sight. God, gracious, tender, let aside his splendor, stooping to woe, to win, to save my soul. The third verse. Without reluctance. Flesh and blood his substance. He took the form of man, revealed the hidden plan. O glorious mystery sacrifice of Calvary. And now I know he is the greater I am. And then the chorus. Oh, how I love him. How I adore him. My breath, my sunshine, my all in all. The great creator became my saviour. And all God's fullness dwelleth in him. What a hymn by the great William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. And that just puts it right into a lovely picture of his condescending humility. Now tell me, dear Christian, in the light of that, are you a humble Christian? Am I a humble Christian in the light of that, his condescending humility? And then think of his practical humility. We read about it this evening in John chapter 13. Now tell me, have you ever read H.G. Wells' Time Machine? 
Anybody read that, read that, read that book, H.G. Wells' Time Machine? Well, it's a wonderful book, H.G. Wells' Time Machine. It's about this science fiction machine. Imagination, of course, your science fiction. And uh, it's a time machine. You get into the time machine and then you can turn the dial either into the future, hundreds, thousands of years in the future. Or you can turn the dial into the past and go back hundreds, thousands of years. And I just wish, dear friends, this evening that we could get into H.G. Wells' time machine and set the dial 2,000 years ago and actually to be in the very room where this happens. What a sight it must have been. There's the disciples reclining as the custom, not sitting, but reclining. And then Jesus gets up from reclining, takes off his outer garments, girds himself with a towel, pours water into a basin. Can you imagine the atmosphere? The disciples, they're actually looking at the Son of God, their master. What's he going to do? Now, washing feet in that particular day was the, was the job of the doulos, or the slave, or the servants. That was his job, the doulos, the slave, the servants. But not one of those disciples moved to wash each other's feet. But Jesus did. Can you see him on his bended knees? Going from disciple to disciple and taking off the sandal, washing their feet and drying them with the towel wherewith he was buried. What a sight it must have been. How the disciples feel about it to see their Lord and Master doing this. And remember, when he came to Judas the Iscariot, he washed his feet, knowing that in a matter of hours, Judas the Iscariot would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. But he still washed his feet. And then he came to Peter and took off Peter. <laughs> when he came to Peter, Peter said, What are you going to do, Lord? What are you going to do? You're never going to wash my feet. Never. Never in a thousand years you're going to wash my feet. The Lord said, I don't wash you, Peter. You're no part of me. And then he took the opposite point of view. He said, okay, Master, if you're going to wash, don't, don't just wash my feet. Wash, wash all of me. My head, my hands, everything. Oh, a man of extremes. He washed Peter's feet even though he realized that in a matter of hours Peter would deny him not once, not twice but thrice, three times don't know who you're talking about never met the man, don't know who you're talking about denied him and yet he washed his feet 
watched all the disciples' feet, realizing that in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of them, without exception, they all forsook him and fled. Wash their feet. Get up, put on the outer garments, then reclines, and then he says, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you what an example that ye should do as I have done to you. There is practical humility. Now I'm, I believe there are certain churches in America, could be here in Britain, I don't know, in which they have actually washing of disciples' feet as part of their church activities. Now I wonder how you would feel if that was the case here in Moody'sburn, if you had that sort of service, and you think of Mrs. So-and-so, I don't like her, can't, can't, can't stand her, or you think of Brother So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, oh, fool of pride, don't like him, tell me, would you wash her feet, who you didn't like? Would you wash that brother's feet that you despise and you've got no love for? Would you wash his feet? It would take grace to do that, dear friends. But Jesus has left us a practical example. Now, I'm inclined to believe personally that perhaps the Lord wasn't instituting that particular type of service, but he was certainly teaching us about practical humility. You see, dear friends, there's a wonderful consistency about the Lord Jesus. For example, he believed in prayer, but he prayed. There are many of God's people that believe in prayer, but they don't pray. There are many of God's people who say they're humble, but they're not humble. They're inconsistent. But in the example of Jesus, there's this glorious consistency. In other words, he put into practice what he preached and what he taught. And he taught about humility. He said, for example, he that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. He taught humility. And he said, I have given you a practical example of Humility. They tell me, dear Christian, in the light of that, are you a humble Christian? Am I a humble Christian? Or are we still full of stinking pride? Or are we humble Christians? Realizing what we are, we are by the grace of God alone. His condescending humility, his practical humility and then think of his ultimate humility you have it in Philippians chapter 2 it says Jesus has been found in the form of a man humbled himself 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's his ultimate humility. Now, that's something straight, dear friends. All the craftiness and evil desires and designs of the Sanhedrin Council was utterly powerless and impotent until the Lord said that the hour has come. And all the might of the mighty Emperor of Rome with all its legions they were powerless and impotent until the Lord said the hour has come. Here's what he said himself, not my words, his words. No man taketh my life from me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. You see, dear friends, the Sanhedrin council didn't take his life from him. The Roman emperor didn't take his life from him. He voluntarily and humbly humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even, even the death of the cross. Now, have you ever noticed, dear friends, reading Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they but state he was crucified. They don't go into any details about the crucifixion. Ever notice that? They don't. Bill Gibson produced that film, The Passion. And in that film, he went into a lot of glory details about crucifixion. Some could be true, some may not be true. In films, sometimes they go beyond the facts of Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John just state the fact he was crucified. Now why was that? For the simple reason. They had no need to. Because the readers reading Matthew, Mark, Luke and John would have known exactly what was meant by crucifixion. And when they saw a man carrying a cross, he wasn't going for a picnic. It meant one thing. He's going to die on that Roman cross, stark naked. And that's what happened to our lovely Lord. They took him when his hour was come. They took him and they brutally crucified him stark naked on the cross. Because the Bible says he endured the cross despising the shame. What humility. He humbled himself to undergo such a death. That's his ultimate humility. Down, down, down. From heaven to earth. To the manger. And then from the manger ultimately to Calvary's cross. And there he humbled himself. Became obedient unto death. Even, even the death of the cross I wonder was there a, was there tears in Paul's eyes as he wrote that to the church at Philippi concerning Jesus 
he humbled himself. And dear friends, if he hadn't done that, you and I would not be sitting here this evening. We rejoice that salvation is free. doesn't cost us anything. But it cost him everything. Someone said, um, any English people here tonight? Any, any English? Oh, there's one. But I better be very, very careful what I say. It has been described that, that, that your English, the English love it because they can talk about it. The Welsh love it, and I'm married to a Welsh lady. The Welsh, they love to sing about it. The Irish, and I'm from Northern Ireland, we like to fight about it. About the love of God. And then, of course, it's good for the Scottish people. Shall I say this? Because they get it free. Doesn't cost them anything. Well, the universality of God's salvation it suits the Irish, suits the English, suits the Welsh, and it suits you good Scottish folks. And it's all because of our Lord's wonderful humanity. But I love how Peter, how, how Paul continues after giving that tremendous statement, being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The next verse said, Wherefore? God also have highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow every tongue confess what that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father you see he humbled himself and he was exalted they tell me dear friends in the light of that, are you a humble Christian? Am I a humble Christian? That's the example. Not your example, not my example, but he's given us a perfect example. And Peter says, we should follow in his steps. May God grant to evening that we shall indeed be humble Christians and be humble as he was humble. I think the words of an old hymn by E.C.B. Bolton, in which he says in the chorus, In the steps of Jesus we would plant our own blessed path of triumph leading to the throne. May God give us grace this evening to follow in his steps of his wonderful example in humility. Condescending humility, practical humility, and then that ultimate humility, obedient unto death. God bless you.